you open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. As we finish out this great chapter, what a journey it's been. What a great journey it's been as we have followed Jesus, met a woman at the well, met her fellow townspeople, and now are moving on to the next phase of Jesus' ministry. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? We need the Lord's help as we come before His Word. Precious Lord, take our minds and our hearts, our will and our affection. Guide them both according to Your Word. Lead us into truth. And sanctify us by that truth. Set us apart for Your good purposes that we might bring honor and glory to Your name. And what we came here this morning not being, we pray that You would make us. What we came here this morning not possessing, please give us. And what we do not know yet about You, Lord Jesus, teach us this morning that ours would be hearts and lives of faith following You all the way home. We ask and pray this for Your sake, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's begin reading in verse 43 of chapter 4. After the two days He went forth from there into Galilee, For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet has no honor in His own country. So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him, having seen all the things that He did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore He came again to Cana of Galilee, where He made the water wine. There was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Moving into these closing verses that we just read this morning, we find a sharp contrast. And yet, I would say to you this morning that the contrast is not the point of the text. The contrast is not the point of the sermon. The contrast is there to show us the undaunted determination of Jesus. Many commentators have become so engrossed, I will tell you, over this passage that it is mind-numbing to read the commentaries. They're bogged down into what Jesus meant when He said, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Well, then where is Jesus' homeland? Where is this hometown of which they speak? And on and on it goes. It can be, in so many words, adventures and missing the point, but the point is this. Jesus is determined to accomplish His mission in saving sinners. Everything else that occurs is merely background 
that shows the determination of Jesus. And so while the small details are important, each of them ends up pointing us here to this place. We have a determined and an undaunted Savior who has come to save sinners and will not be stopped. It is what the Samaritans left us with last Sunday. If you'll look back at verse 42 in their confession. We ourselves have heard and know that this One is the Savior of the world. When we leave the Samaritans, these are the words in our ears. When we leave verse 54 this morning, as we exit out of chapter 4, this is the same truth that we still hear, not from Samaritans now, but from a noble man, a Jew. And so John, here in the passage this morning, illustrates that point for us, that Jesus is an undaunted, determined Savior. And for that, every single one of us who know Christ should rejoice. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you should listen. Listen intently. John weaves three smaller uh, passages together here, each one building upon this theme, introducing us further and further, more intimately and more intimately to this gracious Messiah, this determined Savior. The Savior of the world, we learned from this passage, cannot be deterred by obstacles that men attempt to throw into His way. Jesus, and we should all be thankful for this, that Jesus sees the obstacle, He meets the obstacle, He destroys the obstacle, and He keeps moving toward His stated end. I can tell you this plainly, I am here this morning because Jesus is an undaunted Savior. If you are here as a follower of Christ, as a child of God this morning, you are here this morning because Jesus is an undaunted, pursuing Savior. He always gets His man. He never fails. No one can stop Him. He will go and He will do what humans would say is irrational. Here in this passage this morning, why? Because he is determined to save sinners. You're not coming to Jesus. Jesus is coming to you. Jesus seeks and saves those who are lost. It is he that is on a mission. It is he that is on an undaunted, determined mission. And it is he who will accomplish his mission. And for that, we all say... Amen. Praise the Lord that He does not stop in the face of these obstacles. Before we can really understand that, let me just say this. If we see no obstacles to Jesus coming to us, if we believe that we are guiltless when it comes to these obstacles thrown at Jesus by these people in the text, then we haven't understood the nature of our sin. We've not understood just how opposed to Jesus we were. When we understand how our sin is so pervasive and so wicked and so God-hating that has made us enemies of God, then and only then will the beauty of a determined Savior mean anything. And yet here it is. This determined Savior. I want you to notice, first of all, that the first obstacle Jesus overcomes is an obstacle of honor. An obstacle of honor. Jesus, in the previous story, in the previous portion of this story, has received, hasn't he, a warm embrace by Samaritans. He's been given and extended what in the ancient Near Eastern world is the highest form of care and compassion and honor to be invited in to stay with someone and particularly to share meals with them 
And so for two days, Jesus has been invited in and honored by these Samaritan people. Their reception and their kindness is reflected in their send-off of Jesus. Declaring Him to be who He is. They honor Him by telling the truth about who Jesus is. What a lesson for us as believers today. How do we honor the Lord best? By telling the truth. Jesus is honored in this, that they say who He is. He is the Savior of the world. What a great message for us to honor the Lord in our proclamation that we would go to all the world and say He is the Savior for the world and there is none other. You must believe in Him. And so Jesus here is honored by these Samaritan people. And so as Jesus is leaving them, we get the sense that he is departing and departing for something quite different. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is going back to the reality of this. Going to his own. And those who were his own did not and will not receive him. Jesus now leaves Samaria a place where we would have expected he would have been most unwelcome. A place that we would look at and say, you know, it's impossible to have fruitful ministry there. If Jesus and his disciples were being advised by some of the marketing groups that supposedly uh, help churches today, they would say, you know, Jesus, that's not really a demographic that you're going to do real well with. You're not going to poll high among the Samaritans. They don't really like Jews, and they really don't like Jewish teachers. So Jesus, maybe find somewhere else to go. But Jesus, being a determined Savior, goes right to where humans would tell Him never to go. And what happens? Revival breaks out. Many, many, many believe in Him. Why? He's undaunted and He's determined to do what He came to do. And that is to seek and to save sinners. So we would expect then that going back to His homeland, certainly... If the Samaritans accepted him and honored him, that his own people would. And Jesus says, no, I'm going back to a place in which there will be no honor. Wow. And again, the marketing people would tell Jesus, Jesus, don't go there. You won't pull well. You won't do well there. Your message won't sell there. We know you're not going to change the message, so maybe change the audience. Jesus sets his face. We're told later in the gospel, he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He sets his face towards his own people who are so unlike Samaria, who will show him no honor by recognizing who he is. You know, Jesus didn't come for accolades. Jesus didn't come to be coddled. Jesus didn't come to get social media likes and shares. Jesus came to save sinners regardless of the cost to his own life. So Jesus turns away from people who shouldn't have but did accept him to now go to people who should accept him but won't. A sentiment that he will voice later in his ministry in Luke 13, 34. You remember the scene. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And he stops on one of those overlooking hills and he looks out over the city and he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem! Oh, Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophet. stones those who are sent to her. That's where Jesus is going. And he knows it. Look back in the text this morning. And after two days of being there with Samaritans, he goes therefore into Galilee, for Jesus has testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He knows that he is going to the city. No, not right away do we find Jesus in Jerusalem. But eventually he's headed there and he's headed into a people and a place that kills the prophets. And what does Jesus refer to himself here as? 
prophet. He knows what's coming. There's been much postulating as to the definition of Jesus' own country. What do we mean here? Is it Nazareth? Is it Galilee? Is it Judea? What is Jesus speaking out? And this week I weeded through no less than 10 suggestions as to what country Jesus refers to here. And again, I don't think that's the point. Jesus is referring to his own homelands. In its entirety and says that I will not be honored there. Jesus is going back to his own, not only his own homeland, but his own people. And he will experience a rejection that ultimately leads to his crucifixion. One can easily find the sadness and the distressing heaviness of what Jesus is saying here. There could be no more stark contrast. For Jesus, from what he is leaving to what he is going to. From those who embraced him to those who will kill him. Again, the Samaritans were winning no awards. They weren't winning those superlative awards like are given out when you leave high school, you know. Most likely to succeed. Most this, most that. The Samaritans were not in the running for most likely to enter the kingdom of God. They weren't in the running for most likely to be right with God because of their hybrid paganism. And yet, they accepted Jesus. And we cheer them, don't we? How many of you read down through verse 42 and you are elated? In fact, as you read this, you want to be a Samaritan. You you want to be with those people. You want to be cheering on your Savior. You want to be confessing to the world that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We find ourselves, humanly speaking, on their side, don't we? And we also find ourselves at the same time looking at Jesus' own people and saying things like, what a bunch of ingrains. What, what, what a bunch of horrible people. I mean, I wouldn't give them a time of day. He's already been there and been rejected once, and now he's going back again. Jesus, please don't. Don't stay in Samaria. Imagine what God could do with you in Samaria. Jesus says, no, I'm going to my homeland. I'm going where I am not accepted, but where I am needed. Nobody likes to see the doctor coming through the door with needles. But we sure appreciate what he does in meeting our needs. Jesus is going to a place where he is not welcome, but where he is most certainly needed. And that is how all of us came to be where we are. We are here this morning because Jesus came to a place where he was not wanted at one point to give us what we need. Amazing. Jesus will now go to people who will reject him. Now once you go to verse 45, look there with me this morning. So when he came to Galilee, Jesus has now left. Jesus has gone. We know the place that he's going to. He comes to Galilee, and the Galileans received him. And we might take a deep breath and wipe the sweat from our brow and say, maybe there is honor for a prophet in his own home country, among his people. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe Jesus was wrong about this. But notice what the text goes on and says. The Galileans received him, and now we're told why. Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. Go back to chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 to find out what those are. Because they themselves also went to the feast. They had seen things that made them curious about Jesus. And so Jesus is coming and it appears that he is being received But at best, Jesus is going to a group of people who are going to use him. 
They don't want Jesus. They want what Jesus does. They want the benefits of Jesus without Jesus. They want the healing. They want the wine that came from water. They want all of these things. And why do they want them? For their own fleshly indulgence. But to say that he is God and King and Savior and Messiah, no thank you. (coughs) Jesus goes to a people who will at best use him so that for some he might save them. You see, it's not ultimately our determination, but Jesus that matters. It's what we read earlier in Romans chapter 9. It's not man who wills or man who runs, but God who shows mercy. Dogged, undaunted, determined mercy. Theirs is a reception in verse 45 of benefits, but of repudiation of Christ. They want miracles, but not a Messiah. They crave indulgence of their desire, but they crucify the provision that God gave for their greatest need. There is no honor, only usury. That brings up the second obstacle then. There is an obstacle of fleshly indulgence. The second obstacle to a Samaritan-like response, to a right response to Jesus, the Galileans receive Him. We're not told what type of reception it is. is not apparently as warm as the Samaritans. They're not inviting him to come in and stay. They just simply acknowledge and accept the fact that he's there. And it's okay that he's there for now because, after all, he might do something again like he did earlier. And we saw how great that was. So whether it was good or bad, we don't really know. It's certainly not like the Samaritan. But we do know that Jesus bonafides his true person, his true nature is not the proclamation of these people like it was for the Samaritans. It is only his work. He's a man. For them, a novelty. And a want based vending machine. Put in your request, get your miracle. Show your desperation, get your miracle. Right here today and today only. Here is Jesus. Come get your miracle. Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like the prosperity gospel and too much of American Christianity today that uses Jesus for what they can get out of him rather than worshiping him for who he is. If you want to evaluate your own life to make sure that you're not in that boat, listen to how you pray. How much time do you spend rehearsing back to our great and glorious God what He is, who He is, the ways that He works, enjoying fellowship, talking about who He is as He has revealed Himself in His words over and against Lord God. I need, Lord, give me. No, and there's nothing wrong with asking. But what's the proportionate distribution of our prayer life? Is it to consume it for ourselves or is it to give it for His glory? These people look at Jesus as just that, a bending machine of miracles. Something Jesus rebukes, doesn't He? Down in verse 48, look at what He says. You people... That is not a good thing. You know, we all have seen the clip of a certain theologian who's now with the Lord who reacts to a question in a Q&A and saying, what's wrong with you people? It's essentially what Jesus is doing here. You people. You people simply will not believe Unless you get what you want. 
satisfaction of carnal indulgence. You want to see a sign. You want to see a miracle and then we'll believe. I want you to notice this. Go back to the account with the Samaritans. You know Jesus didn't work any of the kind of miracles they were looking for in Galilee. The miracle Jesus worked in Samaria was saving sinners. And they believed. They didn't need blind healed. They didn't need the lame walking. They didn't need blood to quit flowing. They needed changed lives. And they recognized that Jesus does that. That is the purpose for which He came. And how what a contrast it is to these Samaritans, to this place where Jesus is going. No doubt against the counsel of some. But He says, these are the people that need Me. This is where salvation is needed. Notice what the text does. It ties it back to what he did in Cana previously in verse 46. He came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and it is there that he encounters these Galileans. And remember that verse 46 brings back that scene from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And even there, Jesus is a little bewildered and rebuking of those who don't understand, even his own mother, even though he was respectful and honoring in the way that he dealt with his mother. He reminds her in verse 4, what does this have to do with me? I, I mean, so great is our salvation, so great is our God, that turning water into wine, what is that compared to what I've come to do? That's nothing. That's nothing. And so it is in that same group of people now that he's come back to. And verse 46 sets up this tension for what is coming. Will these Galileans now respond differently? Will they shun their fleshly appetites to get what they want to truly acknowledge who Jesus is? Now, instead of a wedding, Jesus encounters a near funeral. The one is a celebration really at the beginning of life, at the start of life. It's one of joy and one of great happiness. That's where the first miracle is worked. And now we find a young man being taken in the prime of his life. And here is this noble man, an official, a royal official, whose son is deathly ill in Capernaum. Now, he is not in Capernaum. This is where this man is from. But he comes and he finds Jesus. He heard from passport control, as it were, that Jesus has re-entered the country. And the word has spread that this man, who originally started in Judea at the temple, where they saw all of the first set of miracles, who went to then to Cana and turned water into wine, that Jesus who left and went into Samaria, how dare he, has now come back. And so let's use him. So the man runs to Jesus. This man is broken. This man is dealing with probably the most heartbreaking thing that one could deal with. The loss of a child. Who could blame him? I'd have gone to Jesus too. <laughs> Do whatever you've got to to save your son. Nobody's faulting this man. He does what any natural parent would do who loves their kids, right? Whatever it takes to get my son or my daughter whole, that's what I'll do. I will crawl over broken glass and through what it doesn't matter. Just heal my child. Now, notice that this nobleman, this royal official, he hears that Jesus is coming and he runs down to Jesus and he is imploring that the Greek is a non stop begging. He doesn't go and ask one. He once he continues to ask Jesus over and over, please come to Capernaum to heal my son. Now, two misconceptions that this royal official has are immediate, immediately clear. Number one, he doesn't understand that Jesus doesn't need to be in Capernaum to heal anyone. 
He can do it from wherever He is. He can heal from a distance. He is everywhere present as God, but in His humanity He is here, yet He is still God, so that He can still do what only God can do. The man also makes the mistake of not recognizing Jesus as more than a miracle worker. He does not address Him as Lord or Messiah or the Son of Man or the Son of God. None of those things. He's just a a miracle worker. And he comes and he says, please come down to Capernaum to heal my son. He's going to die. In fact, for all this man knows, he's already dead. He left him in a condition such that he was on death's door. We might assume, one might assume in reading this then that the lack of honor shown to him by using him that way would drive Jesus away. We've all been used by someone at some point in our lives, haven't we? They butter you up. They want what they they want you for what they can get from you, and then they're nowhere to be found. Nobody likes that. And the next time, if they have the gall to do it, and they come back around and they they start, hey, how you do? What's your first response? I don't have time. Right? I'm not going through this again. And we, and we we brush them off, and one might expect that. Jesus having no honor shown to him, no love for who he really is shown to him, would say, I've been here before. We've been through this once. We're not doing it again. Be gone. Don't bother me. Don't waste my time. But rather than that, Jesus stands. He shakes his head. He issues his rebuke in verse 48. He says, you people, you people, you won't believe unless you get a sign or a miracle or something that tickles your fancy. And then, then you'll believe. It brings up the question, is this faith or faithlessness? The answer is that that kind of faith is the latter. It's faithlessness. It's, I'll believe if. I'll love you if. That's not love. That's not commitment. That's not belief. That's a scientist looking for an outcome in a lab somewhere. If A plus B equals C, then I know I've got something to work with. Faith says, I hear. I believe. Romans 10 tells us, doesn't it, that faith comes by miracles worked and signs received. No, no, no. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. Something they're rejecting to this point. And so Jesus tackles the last obstacle and it is the obstacle of faithlessness. There's no faith. No true faith. There is hypotheses and desire for certain things to happen and then we'll be like, that's not faith. Hebrews 11.6 He that believeth uh, believes in God must uh, he that comes to God must believe that he is and then that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him not the other way around and so Jesus tackles the obstacle of faithlessness in verses 49 the royal official said to him sir come down for my child dies again totally missing the point of who Jesus is and what Jesus possesses the ability to do. Jesus says to him, Go. Your son lives. Huh? Have you ever had a child or someone in your life talking so fast, trying to convince you to do something, trying to convince you of something they need. They're they're just talking, 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 begging, 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 and you say, okay, and they just keep on, and it takes them a sentence or two to realize you gave in. Huh? What did you say? 
You can almost see this man. He's begging Jesus, begging Jesus, begging Jesus, begging. And Jesus says, go, your son lives. Huh? What, what did you say? No, notice the response of the man. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. That's faith. He doesn't know yet if his son's actually alive, does he? He has no empirical data. Nobody texted him and said, hey, he's alive. He hears and he believes the word and he goes. How do we know our faith? According to James 4, it's by our work. Not works for salvation, but works because of salvation. This man believes, and his belief is of a nature now that he takes Jesus at his word and he goes. Now, just as an aside, note this Jesus doesn't heal his son after he sees him go. Faith isn't dependent. Jesus, okay, you take the first step. No, you take the first step, Jesus. No, you take it. And if you take it, then I'll take one, and then we'll meet in the middle. That is not how salvation works. Jesus comes all the way. Determinedly, undauntedly, Jesus comes. And so he overcomes this obstacle of a lack of faith. I skipped over it, but let me just point this out. The last time that Jesus, or that the nobleman asked Jesus to heal his son in verse 49, it, it, it actually moves from a request to a command. It intensifies. Now, he doesn't know yet, apparently, that if Jesus is the Messiah or not, but he believes him. He hasn't been to seminary and had four semesters of systematic theology, one through four. He hasn't done a deep dive into the Old Testament teaching on the power and the omnipotence of God. He hasn't done any of that. But he still believes. Just proof, you don't have to be a systematic theologian. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus to come to Jesus. You believe. And then you learn. And then you grow. And so, well, like Abraham, when we go to Abraham's life as an example in Genesis 12, Abraham has no idea who Yahweh is. And Yahweh, the Lord God, calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, go. Abraham, go. He makes promises to Abraham of which Abraham has to be scratching his head going, how does this work? And yet we find in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God. He just believes his word. No proof yet. No real revelation that, that you know, Abraham had passed systematics for. None of that. Abraham just believes God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So, here's the noble man. He believes. Every child who goes through a Sunday school program of any worth or value to it knows this story. The man starts going home. And his servants run to meet him. And they say, sir, your son lives. Wait a minute. What time did it happen? Seventh hour, sir, about one o'clock in the afternoon. That's the same time I asked Jesus. And what started out as infantile belief now explodes in an understanding faith that shakes this man's life far more than his son's death ever could have. He now not only has physical life, but his whole household has eternal life. They all believe. 
So much so that sickness and death don't really mean anything anymore. There's something better that they've been given. Like the woman at the well. You ask for physical water, I'm giving you living water. You ask for your son to be spared on this earth, I'm going to spare you for all of eternity. And this man believes. And his whole house believes. They saw it too. They heard the message too. And they, for themselves, believe. He concludes this has to be divine. This has to be divine. Let me ask you a question. This man believes the Word. This man believes the Word of Jesus initially, and then the Word is confirmed to him. Did this man self-actualize his saving faith? No. Did this man strengthen his own faith? No. Did this man, by the proof of the miracle, come to faith? No, because he left not even knowing if what Jesus said was true. So where do you suppose a faith like that comes from? It comes from a God who is determined to save sinners. To grant life where there had only been death. To grant faith where there had only been an absolute lack of faith and a lack of honoring God for who He is. No, this man believes the Word and the Word wrought faith within his heart. Faith that saves. So we could say about the Father the same thing we say about the Samaritans as we leave them in verse 42. They heard and knew. This man heard and he knew. By his own strength? No. At the encouragement of his neighbors? No. Because he encountered the living God and the living God had a rendezvous and an appointment with him to change him just as he did that Samaritan woman. Different circumstances. Different location. Hard location. One you and I would not have gone to. But it was the determination of Jesus to carry out what He tells us over and over in the Gospels in different ways. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. I'm reminded of the story of George Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, islands full of cannibals. When he was in Scotland raising support to leave from the various churches and missionary societies, a man, an older man, walked up to George Payton and he said, But you'll be eaten alive by cannibals. And George Payton looked the man in the eye, he said, Sir. You are well advanced in years and you soon shall be eaten by worms. I must go, whether by worms or by cannibals, I must go and proclaim Christ. Whether I'm honored or not, I'm going to Galilee. Because there are sinners there that need saving. And I go to save them. What grace is ours this morning in the determined love of Jesus Christ. We are all Galileans. We all in our nature reject Jesus Christ. And it is by the determined love and purpose of God in Jesus Christ that we have been saved. Do you understand that? 
Or do you think, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I really appreciate Jesus. I mean, do you know what he did for you? Do you know how far gone and lost you were? It's easy to point at the people on Skid Row, you know, and say, hey, they're so far gone. Every sinner is born so far gone. Dead on arrival. We're not living for a little while and then we kind of sin the first time and then, oops, that's it. No, you are born dead in your trespasses and sins. One who will not honor God, one who hates God, but God, according to Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, determined to save. That's why we are who we are. That's why we are where we are. Because of the undaunted, determined grace, love, and mercy of Jesus Christ to save those who belong to Him. That's what He says, isn't it? To His Father in John 17, out of all the ones you gave me, I lost nothing. John chapter 10, Jesus still encountering increased hostility, increased threats by the Pharisees, says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His children. We would say, hey, Jesus, listen, this is getting a little heated and a little hot. Why don't we hide you away? Why don't we put you in the witness protection program for a little while? Let this thing die down and blow over, and then you can come out again. Maybe we can retool your message. You won't be so offensive to other people. We'll get you a consultant. We'll help you, Jesus. And Jesus in John 10 says essentially what he has said here. Other sheep I have which are not yet of this fold. I must go. And win them. Determined, dogged, unflinching love in the face of absolute opposition. That is why we are who we are. There is no barrier, there is no obstacle to God's sovereign love for sinners to save them. Nothing can stop Him. Nothing can stop him. Someone say, well, if, you, if you believe in all this sovereignty and all this stuff, why would you evangelize? One reason, guaranteed success. Jesus saves. Jesus doesn't maybe save. He saves sinners. Period. Full stop. So we worship Him for saving us and we go and we tell that He might save others. What will you do knowing Jesus can't fail then in His mission to save sinners? What will you do? Will you be afraid to tell others? Or will you like this nobleman tell your whole house and your whole block and your whole workplace and everyone you meet? You met a man We've heard that before, haven't we? Come see a man. Not just a man, the man. Who saves. Father, thank you. That you have saved us. What corpses we are apart from you. What enemies of God... We are. And we remember Paul's words in Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated His love toward us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Determined, undaunted, to the cross, up from the grave, Love shown to us that you might save. Oh, let us, Lord, as your people leave here this morning, ready to just explode because you fill our hearts with these realities. Holy Spirit, remind us what we were. We were the obstacle. 
And yet we were also the object that Christ came to save, to overcome, to win. And may we leave here seeing the glories of Jesus and His determination. And may we live with gratitude every day of our life that it is so. Otherwise, we're without hope. So thank You, Father. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Thank You, Holy Spirit. That You are not deterred. But You accomplish all that You intend to. Father, there may be one in a room this size. I don't know. You know. Your Spirit knows. Maybe they don't even know, but they do not and have not trusted Christ. They've played a game. They have religion. Their families are so on and so forth. Convince them that they are no different than the nobleman's son. They are on the point of death physically and eternally. But that you have come to save them too. Regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they think they have or are, draw them and bring them to Jesus. Break them and bring them to Jesus. Just as you did for the woman at the well, just as you did for the nobleman, break them. Bring them to Christ. And may they run and tell then what great things God in Christ has done for them. We ask and we pray this again, not so that we would be honored, but so that you would be honored. It's in Jesus' name we pray.